This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome movie lovers back for another Anatomy of Movie. Today we go back in time as we talk about the creation of the scary doll that is known as Annabelle. So stay tuned. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. And now, here's Popcorn Talk's Anatomy of a Movie. That's right. We have another horror-filled anatomy for you. For those of you who don't know, my name is Phil Svitek, and alongside me, Dimitri Panos. Hey, movie fans. Hey, Phil. Hey, hey. How's it going? It's going great. We are missing Marissa today. Well, she's fright- she, she hates horror, so she's she scared under the closet she somewhere. She does, and I, I don't know if you know... But she did the, 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 the first Annabelle movie and mm. actually saw Annabelle, that Annabelle movie with Marissa, Brenda. Uh, we, we took her to a horror movie. She said she doesn't like it. And, and I have to say, it was really fun making fun of her watching a horror movie. <laughs> she Fair was enough. very easy to get. So, but, but miss her here today. But she's here in spirit. That's right. So uh, we're talking about the one and only Marissa Serafini, who is our lovely third co-host uh, normally. For those of you just joining us for the very first time, welcome. If you're returning, <laughs> welcome back. Uh, we appreciate you just the same. A uh, couple of things. Understand that it's it's going to be spoiler-filled. We assume that you've seen the movie, so we're going to talk about it. Uh, at length, we're going to talk about not only the plot lines, but also the behind-the-scenes and so forth. Additionally, if you want to follow along, in the description box, we have a link to our show notes meaning the research we've done uh, on these movies, so you can uh, sort of dive in even deeper, because uh, we're going to talk about these things, but we might not fully read them verbatim. Uh, without further ado, let us begin, as we always do, with our quick thoughts for the movie, beginning with Dimitri. Well, you know, I am a horror fan. Uh, I've been, you know, The, the Conjuring, the first one, uh, really, you know, brought in, injected life into horror, James Wan and team. Uh, and, and to think that they were doing this offshoot, this Annabelle, um, you know, and now we're into Annabelle creation, okay? And this is a sequel to the Annabelle movie that came out, I think it was two years ago or so. And for me, uh, this movie, Annabelle creation, has done what rarely so few horror sequels have ever done, and that is be better than their predecessor, uh, it sort of kind of reminded me of that movie, uh, Ouija 2, Origin of Evil. Not just because they shared the same star actress, Lulu Wilson, but because the first Ouija was it was a piece of crap. And the second one, I was like, it was a pleasant it's a surprise. good movie. It was yeah. a pleasant surprise. This movie, to me, was a pleasant surprise. It wasn't as big a fan of the, the first Annabelle. I thought it was horror by rote. Uh, but this one, they injected new life into it. I think a lot of it had to do with uh, David F. Sandberg as the director, who did Lights Out. Um, again, a, a clever little horror movie. And uh, along with Maxime uh, Alexander, a cinematographer and their editing, they seamlessly made it part of the 
now the conjuring universe and just little flares like sandberg's movement of the camera was very james wan-esque okay the way that it looked um we had little tie-ins like the 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 black squid ink vomit you know ties into the conjuring um so all these little things these little details if you've been watching the conjuring movies you know, they, they put it seamlessly into this universe, which I really appreciated. Uh, also, it, it had the scares. I mean, this this movie made me jump. It was a it was a you know, it was a it was a roller coaster ride. What a good horror movie should. The audience I saw it with uh, was getting into it. I've said this before. Between comedy and horror, those are some of the best types of movies to go to uh, because the audience crowd and involvement. So it looked good. And then um, finally, the cast and performances were really good. Uh, I say this in my review that performance, I feel, is very um, important in a horror movie. I know you're going to say it's very important in every movie. But in a horror movie, if it's over the top, then the movie becomes, then the, then the movie becomes cheesy. And the movie becomes campy. Yeah. You've got to care. And I've got nothing wrong with camp if that's the way the director wants to go. But in a movie like an Annabelle, uh, when you look at some your classic horror movies, they take it for real. Uh, no one phoned in anything. And you get more you get more invested into the characters and you care. And that's through performance. So I think the performances in this movie, the look of this movie, sound design in this movie was awesome. So I was, I'm a big fan. I, I really enjoyed Annabelle Creation, and I look forward to the expansion of this Conjuring universe. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, for me, I'm more of, uh, I, I knew the Insidious chapters, but Conjuring kind of just went by me. I, uh, I didn't get involved, not because I wasn't looking forward to it or anything like that, I just kind of went by me uh so this is my first foray into this and uh and you know what i picked a good movie to start with because it's the creation of it all or at least annabelle mm -hmm. and uh so i wasn't lost or anything like that and it made it very simple i appreciated the fact um it was it was uh you know we'll talk about this but the sort of western element of being out in uh the Nowhere. house that they were yeah yeah um, so I enjoyed that because it not not only blended those horror elements, but also kind of that Western feel. Yeah. Um, except uh, the bad guy, the gunslinger, is a doll that's about to kill you. <laughs> so it, it changes it up a little bit. Uh, and overall, you know, when you talk about, uh, I, I think in terms of acting, I think like acting or uh, comedies, you can say it's a matter of timing. Sure. Uh, this is a matter of subtlety, right? Because, mm -hmm. you know, you're doing very particular movements you're doing very particular um things with your head your your body and so forth and so if if that's played too you know it's you know uh it has to be done right and, and it's, it's the the art isn't the subtlety it is it, and and it's about taking the subject matter seriously think about it and think about like john carpenter's halloween if his three leads like if they were just bad actresses and they hammed it up you don't care. Think about movies like The Exorcist. Had they not had Linda Blair or they pick somebody else to be Father Marin or they just get somebody, you know, who's just not right for the role or maybe they, they, they cheese it up, the horror really doesn't work as well or as much because it, it, they're playing towards this sort of silliness. Mm -hmm. um, 
So, and again, there are certain horror movies where I'll buy silliness. You know, some of the Friday the 13th sequels and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But performance matters in a horror movie if you want to truly be scared because you need investment in said characters. You need sympathy because part of that tension relies on you caring whether or not they're going to make it. One of the things that I certainly want to talk a lot more in depth about is the... Are the characters that they set up um, because they're vastly different? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we had a good range of little girls to you know almost adults, if you will, um, and just and I mean, in a, in a simple sense, something that uh, was was there underneath was this notion they want to be loved and adopted, right? But at the same, you know, I, I don't think there was any notion from uh, the older girls, you know, not that they outright said it, but like they know their lot in life, like they're gonna hit. They're going to become adults, and then they're going to go off into the world. They're not, get, they're not getting adopted. Essentially, um, they just know that. It, that's an interesting point that you bring up because, I, in all honesty, I wasn't necessarily. I was so focused on our two young characters, uh, Janice and Linda, uh, and, and 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 our the nun, mm-hmm. um, the older kids. You're right. I you know I never thought of it that way, and they were good. The, the actresses who portrayed them, but you're right. You did get the sense that. Now thinking back on it, that they they definitely sort of kind of knew their lot in life, and yeah. this is just another halfway house for them, so to speak. Um, yeah. But yet, a horror, a horror haunted house uh, that they all pull together to to try to get out. Yeah, you know, you know, um, and so let's. I'll, I'll give a little bit of the backstory, and then we'll sure. we'll, we'll talk about the because uh, I definitely I'm dying to dive into the story, but. Yeah. Um, so quite interesting, you know, they they wanted to make the sequel yep. very early in 2015. They confirmed, like, hey, let's do a sequel. And they were looking into it, and they uh, James Wan saw early cuts of Lights Out, or at least almost the near completed. Mm-hmm. And, Which uh, he produced. Yes, he did. Yeah. And uh, so David Sandberg, he was the director of that, and uh, I can't praise that movie enough. Yeah. It really came out of nowhere. It was, a, it was a breath of fresh air in the horse. It just I, I agree with you. And, and when you think about James Wan, right? Um, it, it's funny because uh, I, I I sort of switch around this famous Disney quote, Walt Disney, where you know where it all began with a mouse. With James Wan, with him, it where it all began with a doll, and I'm talking the saw doll. Okay, so his foray into horror, he's been doing it a lot, and he's very successful. And then with the Conjuring, he reinvents the haunted house genre, makes it an investigative story. When he's choosing directors in a movie like Lights Out, you know, he just knows. Like, this guy, David F. Sandberg, picks up James Wan cues. One of the big things in Lights Out, not only was it the lights, but it was the sound of the switch going click, click, mm-hmm. click. He uses sound to his advantage in horror, much like he does in Annabelle. And he was a perfect choice, I think, for having him go from this little clever horror movie that delivers scares and jumps to have him do this, to have him do uh, Annabelle creation. I thought it was a wise choice. You know? Absolutely. And, you know, uh, what also was evident is that uh, David really appreciates the horror genre, and so he didn't want to do a formulaic thing, but then he was blown away by the script, and he really saw it. Well, it's not going to be formulaic. Yes, there's going to be tropes that, as he said, you know, we'll, we'll dive into deeper the technique, but 
you know, the James Wan tropes uh, are part of that, but that excited him rather than like, ooh, um, you know, it's, it's going to be formulaic. Right, and, and I think for me anyways, I think that's what hurt the first Annabelle movie. And I don't want to diss the gentleman who directed that because I believe he was, he's uh, James Wan's cinematographer for The Conjuring and such, but he didn't have the flair that James Wan had uh, or has and exhibits. And I was expecting more of that. And he seemed to just fall back on what we already know of horror to, to make people jump. Um, David F. Sandberg, on the other hand, uh, really, you know, you could tell that he loves horror. And while he doesn't repeat James Wan, but you can tell he, he's cut from that same cloth. I find it very fascinating that we're talking about a movie where Annabelle the doll, while it had some part in the original Conjuring, right? Had some part, but it wasn't the main part of the movie. But yet it has, for lack of better words, a life of its own, right? Mm-hmm. And I just find that it's... So you came up with an Annabelle movie that, that tells the next chapter of this doll. I was always wondering, how did the Warrens get involved with the doll? I thought that was going to be a Conjuring sequel right mm-hmm. you go forward or if you're going back that's because we set up the warren so great let's let's find out how, how their case went with this doll but now after that movie they decide to go even further back <laughs> and and you go to the you know to creation um and i want to talk about this because it was i want to talk about an interesting article i read from the hollywood reporter that talked about horror sequels um I think going back sort of kind of helps. It helps within the Conjuring universe, Mm -hmm. um, what they did. And again, I think they just delivered a scarier movie. And it doesn't take away from the bite of the doll when, if, like, when you go to watch The Conjuring, which I strongly urge that you do, when you see the doll, it's not going to take away from the bite of the the, the scares of, of what that doll can do. So uh, they, they uh, again, along with the writer as well, uh, they did a very, very good job of, you know, Gary Doberman. They really took their time to put it into the universe and make it somewhat seamless, even mm-hmm. more so than the first Annabelle, mm-hmm. I felt. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I can't speak to that, but I know on the whole, it just, um, it, it stood alone. You know, and that, that was the great part is, you know, uh, it was it was enjoyable. F- well, it was horrific from sure. start to finish. Yeah. In, in that way. And let me ask, like, how many horror movies, like, especially if it's a sequel, unless it's like a Friday the 13th, you could pretty much jump into those any anywhere. But for any sequel, for it to literally, like, this does stand alone. You don't need prior knowledge of well, The anything. only one, I mean, believe it or not, I think they've, you know, in the overall spectrum of things, they've done a good job because I, I saw Insidious 2 before Insidious. And then uh, Chapter 3 of Insidious, that's a standalone bit because it's mm-hmm. before the events of sure. Insidious 1 and 2. Yeah. So uh, I, I think they know within their wheelhouse how to do these movies where they fit part of a larger whole or, hey, do you want to piecemeal it? Have at it. Yeah, and and it's great, too, because James Wan also brought us Insidious, which is another fine horror trilogy that delivers originality, it delivers shocks, twists. Mm-hmm. It's a good, I mean, that too is another um, 
strong horror entry from James Wan. I like his stuff. I get that he's doing other things. You know, he's, I think he's working on Aquaman right now. But we have video of him talking about Annabelle and, and horror. And I like listening to him because he, he, he seems to be like this generation's almost John Carpenter. But he, he loves talking about the genre. He has a passion. And that means that that always, I don't know, I think it comes through in his movies. Yeah. You know, so. So, uh, yeah, why don't we uh, uh, play that clip if we can? Anthony, our engineer in the booth. Cue it up. James Wan, producer. Um, just let us know when you got it ready. Yeah, just have Brady hit play. <laughs> all these the, the okay, audience doesn't know all these names. He's my dog. <laughs> He's in like the booth. Marissa, Brady, <laughs> Anthony. Who the hell are these people? Artifact room is the idea that each of these haunted artifacts that the Warrens have quote unquote confiscated through their years of paranormal research and investigation that they've kind of collected and put it into and housed it inside like you know like this room in their basement someplace um it just became an organic thing that you started asking going i wonder what was the story behind this artifact and then you go i wonder what was the story behind this other artifact and uh and then it became you know that then we thought you know wouldn't, wouldn't it be a great idea that if, at some point you know, um, you know, if we if we are successful and lucky enough, we can spin off all the different stories and go and touch on the different um, artifact, and, and in essence, basically, basically opening up a, a much bigger world. And uh, and I think um, the Conjuring universe has uh, really blossomed from that um, from that, and it came from a place that was pretty organic to begin with. Now, yeah. what I we love. Knew that Let's hit pause for a sec because I want to I want to comment on what he says because I think it's very important, especially of movies from this summer. He says, if it were successful and if we were lucky enough for it to be successful, I'm sure when Warner Brothers decided to release The Conjuring, they didn't have an idea that it was going to be as big as it was. Right. But they knew that it was cheap to make it. I'm sure, they tested it. They had the goods, they knew it, they marketed it well, it becomes this really big horror hit of that summer. And the organic way that this became a franchise wasn't, ooh, we gotta map this all out right now. No, James Wan delivered a good movie. And he thought, well, wow, the Warren's basement. Like, that's the way that I think studios should start approaching their movies that are not books that they've acquired and bought or they've pre-bought a quote-unquote franchise work on making a really good movie and with luck and if it's successful then think of the ways to develop said movie into either offshoots franchises because conjuring is the way that movies were became franchises in like the 80s and whatnot and even farther back. You made a good movie. People liked it. Let's make another one. And this one, when you think about it, it's an offshoot of The Conjuring because it's about a doll that, again, takes up a whole of maybe 10 minutes in The Conjuring. That, to me, is fascinating. But I think studios should look at the organic way of having developing new franchises. Make a good movie first. Oh. Uh, at this point, unfortunately, I think a lot of studios are more marketing machines rather than... <laughs> well, no, no, you're how, right. How do, how do we, you know, how do we start marketing for something? You know, we got to market five years out as opposed to X, Y, and Z, and so it's. But my point is, then, you know, yeah, it was I, a I good it. risk 
to, for Warner Brothers to say, let's release The Conjuring. It's not associated with any other movie, right? It is, let's see what happens. And they did, and catapulted Lee Winnell and James Wan, and you know, and now Insidious, and which isn't necessarily part of that universe, but with Annabelle, now we're getting a wider, bigger Conjuring universe, and uh, so far I'm, I'm I'm enjoying it, you know. So, but they did it organically, as James Wan said. So. I like it better than the Dark Universe, that's for sure. Well, there you I won't go. go. I won't go more into depth than that. <laughs> So I'll leave it at that. But that's that's a good, that's the difference. That there wasn't any organicness to that, that they tried to make it organic. Where the Conjuring here has been all organic. No. So, um, so let's get uh, let's get into the story a little bit. Um, I'm trying to think of like the beginning to me was done so interestingly uh, because, in some sense, you know like. When, when you open up on that workshop, yeah, it's supposed to be so loving and tender, and yet there's just that element of creepiness because you oh. know it's coming. Like at, at no point, unless you go into this completely blind and you've never been told anything, you know, like oh, right. It there, <laughs> there's definitely that that presence, yeah, of darkness because yeah, it just it, it, it kind of I don't know for me it was very unsettling because I'm like. These dolls are going to children. Right. These are children's toys. Yep. And we're about to see what goes wrong. Or uh, what can go wrong. What I really, what I liked about it is, number one, the movie's a period piece, right? It takes place out in Monument Valley-esque west isolation. Uh, this man's a toy maker, Mullins, Anthony Lillipogli's character. And... You did get a sense while he was making his dolls that there was a sense of pride, you know? And people were waiting. There was that great scene when they come out of church and one of the shop owners, when's my shipment? When do we get my, get my dolls? And his wife's like, oh, you'll have them next Monday. He's just finishing it. But he so lovingly painted it and then so made sure that this is number one of 100. Limited mm -hmm. edition, had the stamp on it. So even back in this period... That craftsmanship, it was important. It wasn't manufactured in a store, in a factory. There was a lot of tender, loving care put into making these dolls that yeah. might make somebody happy. Which, and by the way, you know, as around. you kind of go through it, um, the stuff that I was always looking at was even in her room, whether it's the, um, the dollhouse and, and all sure. these things, I would assume that he made for her. Right. Right. And, and so it just brings in that element where obviously he's a great toy maker and so forth. But uh, by doing that, it showed the love that he does have for, for mm -hmm. the daughter, um, because that, you know, A, that takes a lot of work. B, in essence, that takes time away from him, especially the way they portrayed it. It's taking time away from him actually working and earning money in a sense. I took it as everything that he built for her was an inspiration to perhaps build, like, she got the prototypes. Mm -hmm. Like, do you like this, honey? Like, she was his muse. Okay, that's and, a good one. And I took it as, like, that, for me, too, makes the loss of B more, because he more or less stopped doing what he's doing. I took his daughter to be his muse to make her these things, 
and then he would gauge, well, this dollhouse could be good to make, and I can, you know. So she, you know, she 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 was the test, but she she was the inspiration. Mm-hmm. I felt because she he loved doing this job, and I sort of got, I got that in that opening scene. And you're right, all the dolls in the room, it just the light that came mm-hmm. into her room. You know, there was that innocence that uh, you could tell that there was a love between the parents and B, uh, so which which makes the loss of her so much more tragic. Absolutely. So, and that that was the one part that you know, if I had to like really nitpick that I disliked is um, when they did the car crash, a doll comes down as opposed to her body, and in the grand scheme of the timeline, that's not how it worked. Um, and so I was just a little bit thrown off by that mm-hmm. and didn't quite appreciate it. Like, I thought it was clever, and I knew what they were going for, but I'm like, okay, what does that really mean? I just took it as it's it's harsh, and it's one of those... I don't want to see the aftermath of a little girl getting hit by a Mack truck. It's sort of... That scene sort of reminded me of a scene of a more modern movie, uh, Pet Cemetery, um, which their son Gage mm-hmm. gets hit by an Ornco truck, you know, Stephen King's Pet Cemetery, and it was sort of set up almost in the same way. They weren't fixing a car, but the little girl goes walking <laughs> out to get the ball, and yeah, I thought the way they handled it was fine because they made it right at the right cut where you knew. And I like also like how they set it up too. They actually showed that truck like way in the background. And if you saw the trailer, you you, you know what's coming, but you see the truck and you're like that sense of dread just comes in because you know where this is going. And I didn't need to see the remains of the girl. <laughs> I, I actually sort of kind of liked that European sort of kind of cut. It was a little artistic that yeah, you get, I, but I, I, I didn't need the, I didn't need, I didn't need the girl and I didn't need the <laughs> doll. Is what <laughs> okay. I'm saying. Like you know what I mean? As but soon they as just cut. Yeah, because to your point, as I, as I'm seeing the truck, I don't need to see what happens. Mm-hmm. It's pretty clear cut what's about to happen. Had, you it know, was. it is. Yeah. If it came out of nowhere, maybe <laughs> I'd be a little bit uh, confused, but. Yeah, you know right from the get-go what's about to happen. Oh, yeah. Um, the interesting choice that I thought they made was when, uh, when, when the orphans and the sister are coming to here, uh, our only voice from the outside world is really this bus driver. Right. And uh, he doesn't really, like, I, I thought that was an interesting choice that they never go into town and things like that. We contain it to this house. Uh, smart choice. But um, it was interesting, you know, looking back on it, the information that they chose to convey during that bus ride versus because, you know, he definitely could have prepped them like it's listen, this house has a whole weird history, X, Y and Z. Um, You know, I'd love to see it again to see if like he's perhaps holding back some of that information because he knows like, hey, they've got nowhere else to go. And so let me just try to make the best of the situation because why scare them? Yeah. And that's the way I took like a lot of that. I mean, that bus ride up to, well, number one, it sets up a lot of things. It sets up, I always forget uh, that nun's name. I have to, um, Sister Charlotte, played by Stephanie Sigmund, who I thought she was great. 
But it sets up S Sister Charlotte. It sets up the girls, but more importantly, it sets up the very deep sister-like relationship. Not they weren't just like the best friends. They were they were in a sense sisters, um, and their their relationship. And you pretty much right on that bus scene understood because they made that almost like pinky promise that. Wherever you go, I'm going. Wherever you go, I'm going to go with you. We're a package deal. And, you know, I, I really like the way that it's set up. And the two actresses, I thought, were very, they were great. You know, you believed in them. And they knew that they were going to this house. And who knows what's going to happen. And you talked about the isolation. My whole thing is, how does anybody know that these girls are out here? <laughs> I mean, they are literally out in the middle of nowhere. Seemingly, who's going to know that this is also an orphanage? Um, but regardless, it was a place for them to go, and it was sunnier and brighter at the beginning. Uh, there was a, it was fulfilled with hope and promise. Let's say, yeah, you know. Yeah, I mean, certainly, uh, you know, the downstairs was much, much more brightly lit. Um, and even when they go upstairs initially, there's there's light coming through the windows and everything of that nature. So and the stained glass color, mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. We're, uh, we're very hopeful at that point in time. Yeah, I mean, at least for our characters, anybody who's seen a good horror movie every now and then know that something's going to happen. It's called Annabelle Creation. <laughs> the doll's going to have to show up. <laughs> well, you know, uh, and that's part of that's part of the trickery. But I thought, you know, in terms of Samuel Mullins. Um, he played it very interesting because it was just so distanced from the girls. Right. Um, which, I, you know, part of it, looking back on it, they wanted to see, they wanted to, um, you know, have that sense of, like, we've moved on in our lives, and you know what? Part of that is, like, instead of, de like, we need to insert life into this place. Um, and so what better than, you know, a bunch of girls... And you're doing a good thing. You're feeling like, okay, we, we, we're, we're, we're atoning, essentially, for whatever, however guilty they feel for, A, the death, B, you know, the doll. Mm -hmm. What I liked about Samuel Mullins, Anthony Leela Paglia, and Mrs. Mullins, Miranda Otto, at that point in time, Anthony Leela Paglia played it so stern and depressed, okay? Now it's going to be, really? You really thought that this might have been a good idea? For you folks, I mean, I know it's been 12 years. Um, you know, when you're grieving, there's, there's no set time piece or time watch on that. But at least that conversation happened in the movie. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure we did the right thing. And I was appreciative of that. Because as an audience member, I'm watching it. I'm like going, dude, these are girls. Like, you could be a little, I don't know, happier that they're there. <laughs> but you just, like, were... You were grumpy and you're sort of a little short as you're giving them a tour. And this is supposed to be a new beginning. And I was like, wow, maybe not the best idea. They address it in the movie. And I thought that that was very smart. And he, as the movie progressed, he seemed to soften up a little towards, yeah. towards at least Linda uh, and Janice being, you know, she, she, had a, she had her polio affliction. Um, however, the introduction into the house, that was a great one shot, mm -hmm. very well choreographed the way the camera went in and how, uh, uh, P 
people moved about. People from moved one about to from one to another, out of frame, back into frame, opening up. This is the pantry. This is the kitchen. Very cleverly done. And make something that's a tour of a house could be sort of kind of boring. Uh, but they have made it, it, it did it with a flair that I was like, oh, wow, okay. It didn't take me out of the movie. Well, it matched, it matched the excitement of the girls. Yes. That's what it really did. Because, yes, you could achieve that with cuts, but this is just, you know, where, where they're nonstop. You know, the camera reflected that right. nonstop. Yeah. And um, it was very well done. Very yeah. well done. And then you also get the sense, too. So we have, uh, we have Janice, who is, you know, stricken up, partially stricken by polio. So she's n- really not able to walk well and how are we going to make it upstairs can we you know and that's brought up too and the 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 chair comes down and you go well all right there was thought put into this and and that you sort of kind of get too like okay they they knew that this was coming uh i forget if that chair had been used by um by uh they said Esther Mullins they said it was which I'm not entirely sure about, only because I think he could have been saying that as a, just a way of like, hey, you know, we didn't build this. F- I don't know. Although, like, you know, yes, there's one that you could say like, hey, we built it for you to make her feel special. But I think in this case, um, she didn't want to be singled out. Mm-hmm. And so just to say like, hey, we just always had it. Yeah. It makes her feel like, OK, I'm, I'm part of everybody. Like right. it, in that sense, to keep her as part of a group was a better right. thing. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, you know, and that, that was a side where despite his early on actions, I was like, oh, he's sweet. Yeah. You know? And, uh, the chair ride up too was a very well, like I felt directed scene, Mm -hmm. you know, following her, following her up. And there's a scene when she gets up and there's the negative space, like there's the darkness there, but Again, through cinematography, too, you, the way that we're going up, the there's this red stained glass that seems to be on the banister that the camera was going through. And James Wan loves using red in his movies as a sign of there be demons here. <laughs> so um, so there's that the first sense of dread that we're sort of getting is when we're looking through that red. And I just thought, again, it was just very well played where are the times she goes up? Oh, all right, great, it works. Mm-hmm. You know, they took time, and that's that's another thing I liked about this movie. It took time to set up. We didn't get all our scares out of the trailer, but each one, um, it worked itself up to it. And to that point, you know, he was very, they made a very conscious effort to avoid as many jump scares. So there's, there's a couple, um, you know, and I think part of it is now they played with the idea because people are expecting jump scares that they played on the notion, Hey, we're going to, we're going to basically push as much as we can without giving you the jump scare. Um, so I thought that worked well. Um, and yeah, you know, to, to be able to do that, you have to kind of manipulate time in the right way. Um, one of the, one of the more brilliant parts of it was, um, you know, going into that room and the way she was able to do it, uh, you know, you, you can sort of, you can date it back to who you want, but really, to me, it comes back to that Hitchcock vertigo effect. Yes. Uh, where, you know, you're really getting a, 
it's obviously, you know, movies, you can't really get a first-person perspective. Right. Um, this was, this allowed that, at least in that brief moment, to, to see, oh, things are really distorted, and yeah. I don't know what's going uh-huh. on. Uh-huh. Yeah, and, and that's direction, uh, obviously, to cinematography. But, you know, it's funny, because you, you, you had mentioned something early on, and David Sandberg actually cements your argument. He goes, he viewed this film a little bit like a Western movie. Um, because of the exteriors, we had to work without on a farm, a legitimate farm somewhere out in California. Um, and I, ha- I do have the, uh, I have the location and all, but it's open and dusty. It was almost desert-like. Um, and along with the cinematographer, I, I believe Maxime Alexander, I believe the first name is Maxime, mm-hmm. he was able to capture that in the film Cinemascope imagery. So you do get that, uh, you, you get that, this, the beautiful cinemascope, but you also understand the isolation that they're mm-hmm. at, because there's, you know, it takes them time to get into town. Uh, the exteriors of the farmhouse, uh, believe it or not, they were sh- primarily shot location at this place called Big Sky Ranch in Simi Valley, uh, which is about 30 miles uh, from downtown LA. They used an existing structure and the production department, they just modify it with white clapboard to give it a, uh, like a gothic look to it. They also um, had to, even though it was a Western sensibility, uh, that setting apparently came with its own horrors. They had to have wranglers come in daily uh, to sweep it out of sh- rattlesnakes and tarantulas that were hiding in the grass because... Most of that cast, particularly the girls, are outside, you know, right playing on. in the grass. So that's how desolate, you know, this area was. So, um, yeah, it was well played. So we had those lovely exteriors, and then they bring it inside. And what I love is, like, it was primarily shot on the Warner Brothers studio lot. Stage 26, um, that to way be precise. You get the control lighting, and, you know, it just makes it a little bit easier. And that's what they... That's what they said it was all about pulling out walls getting camera in getting the camera into spaces that we needed it to be in um it was all on a sound stage uh the walls that could come out as i said cameras could fit cranes whatever they needed they could do there and the house itself was a two-story design american gothic farmhouse and they sort of kind of built the sets like um like a single story they built them like side to side, which is so cool because I never would have. That's mm. that's great movie magic and editing, you know. Um, so I actually think that's pretty cool, even though it's two stories. But and yeah, I, there we are. You know, in ter- in terms of uh, th- this ties in both story and uh, design. How often, like all the horror, generally happens in the basement, right? And the, for this is the really the first movie, and I'm sure there's others. So if there are, feel free to you know comment. Um, I'd be interested. But this is really upstairs. Mm -hmm. But it's also not the attic, because it's generally the attic or the basement. Right. (laughs) And so it's that, you know, and and that is a creepiness to it, because it's like, okay, this was her room. Right. And this is where the evil's coming from. And uh, I really appreciate how they set that up. And, uh, you know, it's not a jump scare, but the way they they portrayed her initially, just that door kept opening. and, and And then... Um, you know, this ties into the production side. They they really thought of okay, how do we get a doll to really move in a way that's creepy, 
and also you're not having to stare at the doll. And so initially, just having that sheet over her head, mm-hmm. um, that was creepy in and of itself. Absolutely. Because we already got the creepiness of the doll. Right. And, you know, it's, it's funny because this was something that I, while I was watching this movie, I had mentioned uh, John Carpenter before. That is a very popular John Carpenter uh, horror fallback. Uh, he used it, uh, well, he used it in Halloween when Michael Myers has the ghost thing, but he uses it in the fog. Uh, and he used it in a thing where there's something that's covered, but underneath the cover you see movement. And that, to me, is can be scarier than the actual, like the actual thing, the actual body. Well, this is, it, it's almost like uh, kind of like like that a Schrodinger's cat, where you know, that, but in the sense <laughs> yes. you know, there's something creepy underneath, <laughs> right? But until you is pull it, it off, right. Is it the doll? What is it? What is it? Yeah, and it mo- yeah, and it, so so you don't know. No, it's a it's a great. Again, this is why this I, I think the movie has flair and works very well as uh, they show us something, they give us scares that are earned. Mm-hmm. And you're right. What, what's under there? <laughs> Who's under there? Why are they under a sheet? Yeah. And, and also at that point in time, you don't necessarily know the motive, um, which I, you know, I, want, I want to get your opinion on. I thought, I thought it was very interesting. Uh, there's that battle of like, okay, do they go after the weakest person? Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I did feel um, for Janice in that way, and, and Sister um, Charlotte was trying to help her in in that sense. Like, no, you're just you're just as great as everybody else. Um, and I really felt for her because there was that sense of isolation. Like, she didn't get to play with the girls, and as much as you know, when you when you talked about that bus bond between her and, and Linda, <laughs> Linda has no problem going and playing by the well with the rest of the girls. Right. Um, and he, but the irony is, obviously, she's kind of that in between where she doesn't fit into either right. at that point because you know they play hide and go seek and they don't care about her at all. I think you bring up. A, I think that's a really good question uh, on a couple of levels um, from from a horror standpoint. When we're talking about uh, possession, uh, I always will go back to say The Exorcist. Regan was possessed because of innocence. I mean, remember, that family there was a very agnostic family. Didn't necessarily even, uh, you know, believe, but, but, but the youth of Reagan was innocence. And so it wasn't, I think, with Janice. I don't think it was that she was weak. I do. Like, Sister Charlotte was such a... She was an amazing role model for these women, and and I love the way that she was played because she wasn't that stringent rap you on the knuckles nun that we can sometimes get in these you know in, in almost any movie, um, but particularly a horror movie. She was a very good. She was very motherly, and she gave good anecdotes, and she used by example, and she told her said, "No, you're probably the strongest," and I and I don't think that. I believe, in any case, if there was going to be a uh, a possession taking place, I believe it was because Janice was the most true-hearted, I I believe. Of the kids, there was Janice, and then there was Linda. And I think that, if I'm going to theorize as to why, I think it was... um, for that reason. Yeah, because she had the best heart and because she was strong because of her innocence, I believe. So 
Yeah. And it makes it all the more horrific, too. It does, and, you know, it's it kind of echoes the Mullen story where it came from a good place where, you know, at first, I mean, because she only saw the daughter. She's trying to, in, in, in some sense, solve this mystery, if you will. Um, right. And so were they. You know, they, they saw their daughter, like, oh, wait, we have to help. This is obviously not natural, but we have to help her. Right. And so that came from a good place. Um, and unfortunately, when it just comes to the supernatural, just don't. Right. There is no good in supernatural. Yeah, and then this movie does something else, too, that's, that's sort of kind of rare. They set up... There are two mysteries. There's the... What's going on in that bedroom? What are all the sounds going on? And then we have Esther Mullins. Mm-hmm. What happened to her? Like, what? why is she in that room? What tragedy befell her where she's bedridden and she wears a, a Phantom of the Opera-esque type mask? What Rings happened? Right, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, it, when you talk about sound design, that was... <laughs> she rings it, yeah. And then, and yeah, she rings a bell, like, for her, for, for service, so to speak, which also, I believe it was, um, was it Insidious 3? Girl with the Broken Leg had to ring a bell, too. That was another sound I forget sound off the top thing. of my head, but maybe. Um, but in any case, yeah, it was, I believe it was the Insidious 3. The guy's worst 3. nightmare, by the way. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that felt, jeez. Um. But now we have another we have another mystery that is also creepy. Like this is like, well, like what happened? Like why does she hide half of her face? Um, and it all ties in as we learn what happened. Well, part and of I it like was that. either the, the question was did you know um, because of the way Sam was interacting and because of that mystery that you're speaking about. Did they lure them here on purpose? Mm-hmm. And uh, you know that that was the interesting part to me. It was, it was it was playing that game of like these are creepy people, and and, and then to learn to have that switch of no, they tried to do the best they could, and you know the reason why they're here is they they, they they're trying to atone for something that they did back in the day, right? Which was good intention that you know as it was, which is which is another I think strength of this movie is because. Uh, Remember when you, you, you understand the pain of the loss of a child and you understand why they would do something that would be so unorthodox. People try to do that today. That's what makes, in part, that's why a lot of mediums are popular because there's somebody who always, who may have lost somebody and they'll turn to a medium. I'm not saying, hey, whatever makes you comfortable. I'm not saying I believe, don't believe, whatever. Maybe not so much believe, but... If it makes you happy, and if you think that it gives you comfort, I get it. I mean, I'll, I'll be, you got to think. I've never known of a medium to tell a customer, oh, yeah, your husband's glad he's no longer with you, and he's happier now, leave me alone. Maybe some of them should. <laughs> maybe. But I'm just saying, you understand why they took this supernatural, mystical type of route, or a route, I should say. And you get it. Like, you get it. And then because of that, things went very, very awry. And this demon, which is explored and talked about in The Conjuring, obviously Annabelle, uh, the first movie. And again, I just found that it tied in very nicely 
because this is an evil, evil, evil entity. What I what I what I f- appreciate, I guess, and I don't know if that's the right term, but um, <laughs> um, the girl who plays um, S- uh, Stephanie Sigmund, um, Stephanie she Sigmund. requested that the same ritual that was performed on Conjuring Two was performed on set right. <laughs> on here, which is to get rid of the demons. And yeah. um, when you talk about you know you, about the mediums and things like that, it's it's interesting to learn that they did bring in uh, Father Robert as a consultant on this movie. Now uh, he doesn't. His last name is not public because of the profession which he is in. He is an actual priest and ex- exorcism expert. Um, so, and the quote he gets, um, the levitation part doesn't come up every time you're doing an exorcism, but I have seen people who have been able to do things physically that, that you wouldn't see in normal life, um, he says. When somebody will have their feet on the floor and their hands back behind them, bent almost half in there, that would get anybody annoyed, I suppose. Um, and he's he's not just an ex- exorcist himself. He performs other rituals. Um, he's on the uh, Exorcism Institute in America. Oh. Which is a thing. He does deliverances. Um, if they're speaking other languages that they normally wouldn't know, if they're levitating, if they have hidden knowledge of things, if, if they have, let's say, superhuman strength, then he's your guy. Yeah, I wonder if he was used on the Conjuring movies. I don't know. I, um, I didn't get more information. I, I didn't. Than that. You know, I, I can't. Conjuring two, I think, came out a couple of maybe last year, year and a half ago, but that you know that was about possession as well. But yeah, hey, listen, I think that if you're calling this a possession movie, it's 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 done pretty well and scary, and you buy it. Um, but again, the tragedy that befalls the Mullins. Uh, and it is tried. It's on both ends. They're just trying to do something, um, and they go in. They look to their faith, mm-hmm. in a sense, to try to do this. They look to their faith to help them, and so that they can see B, their daughter. Um, they just lines got crossed severely, <laughs> you know, and then they bring in this evil. Well, it's one and of the things that you know uh, is never really explicitly stated in horror movies, but it's it, it's the old biblical thing where um, you know uh, in times of great fears, obviously when the you know the devil prays, and uh, so you know they took advantage of that, mm-hmm. you know the, the supernatural, and, and this comes about. Correct me if I'm wrong, because I think this was also brought up in the movie is that they knew something wasn't quite right. But because they wanted it so badly, when the request came to, I want to go into the doll, yeah. they said, sure. But, you know, you have, you have our permission. Um, the, other, the other thing that they used uh, is the little paper game. Yes. I'm looking for you. Where are you? Find Where me. are you? Find me. Okay. This is another James Wan type of trope that's used throughout. Uh, in conjuring again, it's more of a sound thing, but it was clapping. Mm-hmm. Okay, he brings this up at the beginning as a simple game, and in this movie, a simple game turns into a horrific simple game. It's like, and when you were able well, to, well, they even use that on Janice. That's what she true. did. Yeah, so that's exactly it, what she did. It was, it was, you know, in, in the timeline of things, that was the middle portion, but right. obviously in in chronological order, that was the ending thing. Yeah, so but. I love how you take something as simple and childlike 
and you're able to make it very sinister. Um, and and it and it works. Uh, it, it worked a lot. So, um, and that, you know, it was interesting that they, you know, as, as you kind of discuss it, the confession scene between Sister Charlotte and Janice. Mm-hmm. I, I thought it worked on multiple levels. One, it was very sweet when you talked about her as um, being able to navigate and, and really console the, these kids, and especially uh, her towards Janice. It was a very sweet moment. I thought so. But it also sets up the idea, to your point, uh, the innocence of, of her. Because, right. you know, as she says, like, I sin and things like that. And, and you're kind of, for me, you know, I, I'm unfortunately um, not of the faith, I will say. Okay. Um, not, certainly not to that degree. And so, you know, for me, it was like, okay, well, she was just being curious. And I, I kind of just brushed it aside, like, yeah, it, it, she, you know, she was just being curious rather than sinning, but I think sinning is is a harsh word. And now, if I take that same sentiment, but then hear the Mullins' story, mm-hmm. they I would say they did a horrific thing, but no different than really what she did. Right. And so now I have to reevaluate how I judge this. Yeah. What I what I really enjoyed about that scene that you were talking about, the confession scene, is. Again, Stephanie Sigmund as, as Sister Charlotte, you know, we, we could have had that stereotypical stringent nun, but instead she chose, she chose to go this more inspirational, this more motherly way. And we have a moral compass, right? We know because she was told do not go into that room, she shouldn't have gone into that room. We know that she was led into that room. The once locked door is now unlocked. So, but for the girl to understand that, A, I took the sin as, you know, I, I'm conv- I did something wrong. I went where I wasn't supposed to go. I, you know, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. And there's a bigger picture because she's starting to, through exposition, say, something's not right. And Sister Charlotte. She just, she almost even forgot to say, well, this is what you do, like, give your Hail Marys or what. But she was very motherly, and she was like, okay, you recognize you did wrong. Let's not do it again. We need, the Mullins are out of the kindness of their heart. I thought that that played very, very sweet. Um, and it gave us not only a sense, it not only a sense of Janice, but it gave a better sense of Sister Charlotte as a mm-hmm. character. So um, I appreciate how that character was written and how it was performed by Stephanie Sigmund. Absolutely. She was really good. Uh, by the ways, I was, looking at St- I was looking at Sister Charlotte. And no, it's not a nun fantasy or anything. I know where you're going. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> me um, too. She's attra- Look, she's an attractive woman. She is in the opening scenes of Spectre. James Bond Spectre, she's the woman that uh, James Bond's walking through Mexico City with. And that, that one shot, that's a great shot, that ends up in a hotel bedroom. And then she's on the bed, and she, where are you going? And that's when she goes, oh, I'll for off. a walk. That's her. I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> um, but, yeah, none fantasy aside. Uh, but she was very good in this role and very protective and... Uh, and I'm glad they didn't kill her off. Me too. You know? She lives to tell the she story. She lived to tell the story. Um, 
One, uh, kind of an interesting fact. So um, the girl who plays Janice, um, her brother, he was in Lights Out. Uh-huh. Um, and so, um, and by the way, uh, they, you know, she was considered early for Conjuring 2. Right. Um, didn't work out the way. And so, but James Wan kept, kept that in the back of his mind of like, you know, she'd be good for something. And it paid off mm-hmm. for her. So uh, good for her. And, and obviously, you, you spoke of uh, Lulu Wilson, um, you know, whether it's Deliver Us From Evil or the second Ouija movie. Um, quite an actress. She really is, I have to say. And I was wondering, again, I think that maybe she's becoming the horror sequel good luck charm. Because when a sequel really has no right to be that good because its first movie wasn't that good... She's been in two movies where the sequel was better then. Uh, we actually have, um, uh, she's as cute as a button, too. To listen. We have video of her talking mm-hmm. about Annabelle. But she's, she's great. And in Ouija, she was the possessed entity. She was horrific. If you, if you haven't seen Ouija 2, number one, I suggest you see it. You don't need to see the first movie. But when you see Lulu Wilson in that movie, and then you see Lulu Wilson in this movie, and when you see her in real life, as we're about to, well, like, real life on video, she's just so cute. You go, how could she have been that in Ouija? So, um, yeah, let's start off. Let's uh, listen to her talk, because she's very, very cute and very fun to listen to. Here we go. I think she's scary because, well, this have about you seen Annabelle. Annabelle doll number one? She's ginormous, <laughs> and her eyes, they literally follow you, like the Mona Lisa. The and Mona. even if you're, like, looking at her and you're like, oh, she's staring at me, I gotta move. When you're in that position and you look back at the Annabelle doll, she's still looking at you. And also the <laughs> eyebrows, they're slanted in a way that it looks like she's always planning to get you, and it's really freaky. We can keep going because Sister Charlotte more. is basically Janice's family, and she feels that she has to do everything for Janice, and she has to care to her every need. And this is about horror. He's like David a really Sandberg. awesome director, one of the best that I've worked with. And usually, when you shoot a scene in a horror film, you don't feel like it's scary until you watch it, like with the music and everything. But when I'm doing the scene with David. He makes it feel really scary when I'm doing it, and that doesn't always happen. So I think, I mean, it speaks to that because he let, you know, he let the scenes play out. Right. Um, you know, the difference between Lights Out and this was he, he um, maybe he was just kind of reacting to it, but um, I, don't, I don't know. I, I'd love to kind of hear him more, but he, in essence, didn't script this one out in terms of storyboards, in terms of how he's going to shoot it. He said, we'll figure it out on set. Right. And obviously... By the by, the result of it, it wasn't that he didn't know how to do that, or he was being like, uh, "Well, yeah." And we have d- good yeah. video of him too, uh, which we can play. But I want to go back to Lulu's comments. There were a couple of things the first time I was watching and picking out like video um, that we got from the press kit. Number one, she compares like, "Oh, the eyes always follow you, follow you like the Mona Lisa." The, the, when did you see I the Mona Lisa? I haven't even gone to see. I didn't even know the eyes followed you. The only thing I know that follows me are the two uh, busts in the haunted mansion library. But it's just really funny. She mentions Mona Lisa, and then I like how she talks about well in horror movies when you're filming these things, you know, it's really not scary until they put, and you know, I, and she does it with such an innocence and. 
you could tell she loves doing what she's doing as a kid. Like mm. she's getting to play and imagine. Uh, I just really uh, appreciate that, and the and and the fact that she was able to talk about the importance of another character outside of her own, and, and with Janice, you know, she's talking about Sister Charlotte. So, uh, yeah, I just I wanted her. I, of all videos that I could have chosen, um, she was one because of her time with or Ouija. She's had mm -hmm. horror experience, and I think she did a really good job. And then, of course, we do have some some stuff about from David F. Sandberg himself uh, about filming. So we can start playing that, and that's about yeah. being in the universe. Yeah, he's an interesting guy. He Swedish. Is. Yeah. Swedish born. Here we go. Samara was awesome because she's... That's B. I mean, she's eight years mm -hmm. old, but she's a huge horror fan. So when I first met her, I was like, you know, Samara, that's actually the name of a, of a famous horror character from The Ring. And she's like, yeah, I know. I love that movie. I'm actually named after her. It's like, oh... <laughs> Okay. Uh, and she was, I mean, when we were shooting Annabelle 2, Conjuring 2 just came out. And she went and saw that like five times in the theaters. Like, she's a huge horror fan. So when James, the, the, one day when James came by the set, that was like the highlight for her to, to actually meet him. And she was always like I, I, wanting to do more horror stuff in the movie and like asking me like, hey, can't you let me do this or do that? Because she was so into it. Yeah. Hmm. And she's then, only eight. I think eight. what makes Annabelle creepy, what makes besides the fact that she looks pretty creepy, <laughs> is that uh, James just did a good, such a great job with setting her up in that first Conjuring. So now she has this kind of feeling of dread attached to her, um, which is like you know, seeing this movie in, in theaters, you see that people like they react as soon as she comes up on screen, and, and even on on the set, it was like actors like Stephanie who was like do I have to touch the doll like I don't want to touch it so <laughs> I think that's a, a credit to James to having really created this uh, mythology around and then he goes on to talk about this I think universe. it's very exciting how this yeah. is evolving you know from just the conjuring to now the Annabelle franchise and now it's going into the nun as well and it's it's fun how how they all go together you know? and you know th there is this established timeline uh, how you know how they all piece together, and it's uh, it's fun how like the Conjuring has this more investigative aspect, you know, since it's yeah. based on the Warren files. While Annabelle, while still being based on the real doll, is a little bit more freer in in that uh, it, it's not based on any particular events, uh, so you can sort of go a little bit more crazy in the in the scares department, I think. Crazy they do. I want to bring something up about the doll, too. You remember I talked about the difference between horror and camp, okay? Mm -hmm. We're in the second movie of Annabelle, uh, two and a half. Let's, include, let's throw it into The Conjuring, right? Well, there's another famous, there's another famous horror doll uh, outside of Saw, uh, Chucky, okay? Mm -hmm. Now... One could argue that the first Child's Play movie is, is a good horror budget, uh, horror movie. It's a good B horror movie, I would argue. But, you know, as the sequels went along, Chucky just became campy. And the mm -hmm. movies weren't as scary. You were just waiting to hear what Chucky had to say, what quip he was going to throw out, right? So, but with Annabelle, you know, thus far, anyways, you're keeping to the true disparate that's in this doll, which 
can further the horror. So it's a good example of where camp and horror, like what's really true camp, and you're using a doll. So that's why I wanted to bring that up. So I will never buy anyone a doll. I do not want one in my house. That's what I will say. How about an action figure? Uh, no. They're not dolls. Um, you know, and, and what I really, too, and, and I think you can get a sense of this, too, is that they got, they did 80, 90% of all of the effects in camera. Yeah. Like I mean, a to lot be honest, of I, I, I couldn't even tell, you know, I was trying to go through it, like, what realistically would be CG'd. Yeah. You know? I mean, the only thing I can think of was... Maybe some of the transformation of the doll oh, yeah. walking, the the actual possession of the the the, the squid ink, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the 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 black mist, um, you know. But but David Sandberg, and again he used, it's it's all about lighting, negative space. Did the same thing in uh, Lights Out, you know, and and he even says. Uh, even with the best CGI in the world and horror, you can still sense that there was something there. People saw it and reacted to it. And he's right. Like, if it's, if you're relying on that, you can sort of kind of tell. Where a practical in-camera effect, I think it helps build the suspense a lot better. And he even, Sandberg goes on to say, and again, he's a, like Juan, he also likes to do long, unbroken takes. So we did a lot of camera moves that for that nice transitions between scenes. And Sandberg and his uh, cinematographer, he just went on to say about him, Maxime has a lot of experience in horror space. So it was fun just showing up on the day and discussing with him how we could do the shot the best way, much like you said, without having it fully storyboarded out. And I think it works to effect very well. It, you know, one of one of the f- my favorite shots was <clears> when when she kind of gets dragged. You know, it's it, it's a tale of two halves. One's bright, well, not bright, as as little light as possible, but still seeing. Mm-hmm. And then you know, just complete darkness. This hallway, and you know, the spatial relations like they continually change. You know, what what seemed like a short distance now becomes, you know, you might as well be climbing Mount Everest in mm-hmm. essence. Um, and they were able to utilize that so well um, in that sense. And, and, and I think, you know, it just makes it so much, for me, I know when I shoot movies, it just makes it A, fun, B, so much simpler because I get to see, okay, I know how this is going to fit as opposed to, okay, we shot some blue screen stuff, I, you know. Right. Now let's hope that they get it right. But I'm glad you brought up the dragged scene because let's be honest, at this point, the drag scene, since movies like, paranormal activity, you know, people getting dragged. It's become very cliche. I mean, Jesus, uh, you see it in the trailer in Flatliners. It's like, oh, somebody's getting dragged across the floor again. I can't wait. That's, oh, my God. I can't believe they made, read, they made that. But don't anyway. even, don't get me started. But in this movie, they took the cliche, but with some style and a little bit of finesse, they still made it look different. Well, correct me if right. I'm wrong. It's predicated. They, they they set that up. You know, at, we're using the chair now as right. a device, and it comes right after that. Right, we're right. we're going through this whole suspense of, I got to get down. Wait, what happens if I get down? Like, I got to just stay somewhere in the middle. Oh, now the clicker doesn't work anymore. Oh wait, because it's I got to buckle myself in because that was the thing. Oh no, that doesn't work either. Crap. Yeah. yeah. 
knowing how to build suspense. And, and using a James Wan, using another James Wan technique, right? That's horrific enough. What, I, what, I, what have I always appreciated about James Wan is he goes to what we as an audience think would be the typical scare. Camera wipes up. There's, an, there's, there's a creature up on the, on, the, on the dresser. Oh my God, that's scary. But then the creature lunges. It does that extra move. He does that extra, that, that extra move that makes you jump even high. You're like, you're still in midair from the first jump. And then you're, now you're up on your legs. That scene is, she goes up. I mean, and it's logical. Like, where else is she going to go? Oh, my God. And when she got dropped. Oh, yeah. It's just, they just take the conventional and make it unconventional. And that's what makes a movie like Annabelle Creation scary. Um, I want to talk a little bit, too, because I, th I think it's cool. Um, costuming. Uh, if we could. Leia sure. Butler, who is the costume design. Uh, her biggest challenge on this was finding the right type of polio brace for the actor, uh, Talitha Bateman, who played Janice, um, that suited the period. And at first, um, they, they, they thought they had found the perfect brace on eBay. But uh, but when they received it, there it was about half the size they needed it to be, and eventually they were able to find an authentic braces, but had to manufacture the shoes, so that it fitted at the time. But catch this, the real vintage find of of the movie, believe it or not, was the wheelchair that hmm. she was in. Catch this, it was purchased at auction, and it had belonged to none other than the creator of Tarzan, Edgar Rice Burroughs. Mm -hmm. I think that, that's sort of cool. I, I, I like that. That's sort of kind of cool trivia right there. Absolutely. You know? Um, and again, you can tell that that's the problem. On set, you can say, oh, my God, this chair was Edgar Rice Burroughs' chair. <laughs> Which, again, you took another wheelchair scene that was really scary. No. And not only was it scary, it took place outside. It took place in broad daylight when she was outside. And all of a sudden you see a nun's hands grab her chair and start wheeling her into the farmhouse. I mean, that's in broad daylight. And you can't see who it is because your initial thought is that it's Sister Charlotte. That ain't no Sister Charlotte. <laughs> well, even well, I liked it, you know. Um, <clears throat> I love that it was broad daylight and they played with that because you kept trying to see it. Right. But the way the sun, yeah. you know, I mean, it's very, it's very true. You yeah. know, when the sun's in your eye, you can't see anything. Can't see anything. And obviously, that's where her head is, where the sun was. Yeah. Um, and that that was a brutally painful scene to watch. It really was, and so well done. And then they take something else that should be innocent, <laughs> a scarecrow, and that scarecrow was scary. <laughs> Oh, they, <laughs> the way, that was, and it was even the way they set it up. You're like, if you go to horror movies a lot, you go, yeah, he's coming back. <laughs> In some way, shape, or form, that thing's gonna like scare the crap out of me. And it was it, the way that it was utilized was pretty awesome. Indeed. Yeah, that could have been some. That could have been some uh, CG as well. Um. So. I want to switch to uh, editing a little bit. Sure. Because, uh, obviously, <clears throat> we, we talk about the importance of editing, and there's times where uh, we just don't really give it praise because it's, in a sense, it's so kind of 
part of the movie that it gets right. lost, it which does. is good. I mean, that's the irony of it all. Yeah, if, when it's seamless. Um, and, you know, I, th- I, th- I thought the editing worked really well. Now, part of it, as we've been highlighting, is the cinematography because he, he was able to hold shots. Right. But what I, you know, I, I thought uh, his name is Michael Aller. Mm-hmm. Um, very interesting kind of career. I, w- I want to highlight, I, I, I yeah. don't know him. I couldn't really read his bio. But just on on his, quote, resume, he's done movies such as Big Fish, Jack the Giant Slayer, Eat, Pray, Love, Love. And that was kind of just as part of the editorial department. Right. And now he's really sort of stepping into horror with movies like Lights Out He Did, right. The Boy Next Door. And what I appreciate is he he seems like he was willing to just jump in. I mean, these are amazing movies, so as he should have. Right. And he learned a lot from um, just being able to be a part of those, and, and it's interesting now him applying it to a horror genre. Because I thought he did wonderful. Yeah, I think so, too. And we, you and I, Marissa Winchie's here as well, but we always talk about uh, timing. We talk about editing. Uh, we talk about it in comedy because it's very important. Um, but in horror, editing is extremely important because it's, all right, we're going to get from one scene to another, but editing along with, it's the troika. You've got your director, your cinematographer, and your editor, right? And, of course, your performances. But it's all about piecing this together. And it's like, how are we going to pace this horror movie, right? And when do we let the audience breathe, if that's, if that's the case, how we're going to do it? And if we're going to deliver a scare, how are we going to do it? It is all in the timing. It's how long do we make the audience languish like in suspense before we punch him in the gut yeah. or, or drop him off that first drop of a roller coaster. And that's all in editing. It's, it's a dance. It's like, and it leads, editing leads to suspense. If you're cutting from like you in the wheelchair scene, it's, it's making sure you have your pickup shots of her. Oh, Oh, I don't have it plugged in. And then it's the button. And then it's like, I'm going up, I'm going down. A lot of that pacing is done by that suspense. It's brought through through the editing. It's how quick are we going to do it? And he was great because I always got a sense, like, of how the peril was building. Such as you said, in that scene, in the scene where she's grabbed by the chair, you know, and pushed into the farmhouse. you know, when something is going to jump, how long did I wait for that? Or when is something going to come out from the dark? <clears throat> so he did. He, you're right. He did a great job, and I think lights out too is is a testament to. I think he did a great job. With yeah, that. very good job. Um, Benjamin Walt Walsh Fish um, did the soundtrack for this, and uh, quietly, you know, we we talk a lot about uh, all these fantastic composers. He is uh, sort of an unsung hero as I look back on it. Uh, Golden Globe and Emmy-nominated composer. Um, spans over 60 films. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, movies such as Atonement, um, 12 Years a Slave. Um, did a short film called Auschwitz, which you can tell by the title of the, the subject matter there. Um, recently did A Cure for Wellness. So it's, it's done quite a bit. Think about the movies to the titles that you just mentioned outside of, we'll get into Annabelle for a second. Each one of the movies that you just talked about is about tone. Mm. 
So that's why he's an unsung hero, because his soundtracks aren't necessarily, they're a bed. They accompany the movie. They help the movie go along. But his soundtracks really are about setting a tone for what you're watching. Okay, They may not be the soundtracks that you would go out and buy and put in your iPod or whatnot or stream, but when you look at Annabelle Creation, his music never overpowered the movie. Again, sometimes, and again, in those horror movies that aren't so good, they rely so much on music, where the music drowns out anything that's happening on screen. And now you can tell it's just a cheap way to deliver a scare, is when you have music coming really loud at a certain scene and it's over. Not so much in Annabelle. Yeah. Uh, it worked very well in setting tone, in setting suspense, and setting scares. Yeah. So, you know, he, he, when you're looking for tone, you go to this guy. He's good. He, yeah. Yeah. I'm, he's good. He, you know, I've never really... We didn't cover Cure for Wellness. Um, we did 12 Years a Slave, I believe. We did. and, and That was such a long time ago at this point. That but actually, yeah, we did. Uh, uh, that was... I had, I had that a was great, our inception. Great, yeah, we had a great, great time uh, um, on that one. Well, I mean, a great time. It was a great... I'm sorry. Discussion. Let me. It was a great discussion. Uh, 12 Years a Slave. If you've seen it, go and watch it, because it really is a poignant discussion of that movie, I think. so. Yeah. Um, but he did but a good it, job. So I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, seeing his name on a <clears> few other things sure. as well. So I'm looking forward to being able to put him on our, our mantle of Absolutely. other great composers, whether in Ottman or... Um, uh, Giancino and so mm-hmm. forth. Alexander Desplat. Yes. Oh. Um, Zimmer. Well, he's, Zimmer. He's, just, yeah. he's just Zimmer. Um, <laughs> interestingly enough, uh, you know, th- this movie was supposed to come out a lot earlier, but it got switched because of uh, Alien Covenant. Right. So it got pushed back a lot. Um, but I, th- I think it plays to its... I think they did a good job of doing it. Oh, it's a perfect release date. You know, we the latter for me, the latter half of this summer has proven to give me personally, just my own personal, like perhaps like the most entertaining, like good movies. Like I've been having like like there was Alien Covenants one. I had fun with Guardians. Uh, Wonder Woman came out earlier in the summer, but a lot of the movies as are at the beginning, maybe not so much as good, but. Starting with Baby Driver and going forward, there hasn't been movies where I've gone outside of Dark Tower. There have been fun movies. And this is a really good horror movie, and I think it came out at the right time. I think we need good horror movies. There hasn't really been good horror to come out this summer. 42 Meters Down was more suspense. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a shark movie. And, and the, I'm, you know, just timing never worked out, but you and I both saw it and yeah. enjoyed it, right? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, but, but I can't think of other ones. No. No. There hasn't been a... And we're going into a season where we are going to get more horror movies. Like, oh, I can't it. wait for it. Can't <laughs> wait. I can't wait for it. But this movie, I think, comes out at a right time. Um... It's great. It's been getting people out. I mean, as of uh, August 17th, uh, this movie with a $15 million budget, okay? And this is, you know, it's a $15 million budget. All in, it was, they probably spent not that much more than 50 to 60 million all in. Marketing, hard drives, advertising. They did a good job marketing the movie. And it's... 48 million plus, 48 and a half million dollars domestically. Uh, 
foreign, foreign it's done 53 million. So worldwide box office, it's over a hundred million dollars already. Yeah. Which is, you know, that's a lot of spondulics when you're talking a $15 million budget, which is good because it's good for horror. It says there can be flair and it can scare you. And it means we're going to get more in this Conjuring universe. But it's also great for Sandberg and company and for Juan because he could probably go off and do another type of a horror movie, come back and do, you know, I know Maxime Alexander is working on The Nun, this yeah. Valak character. So, um, yeah, I think uh, thus far they're doing pretty good. It gets a 68% on Rotten Tomatoes. Which isn't, I mean, for horror movies, it's not it's, bad. I yeah, think. for a horror movie, sixty-eight percent is 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 better than usual. Um, I would have, from you know, I, I think a seventy-eight would have been more. Seventy-eight, yeah, for me. Um, here's where I was a little bit surprised. Cinema score was a B. Um, I would have expected from the audience participation a minus. Like this is this is better than a B movie. Yeah, you know, at least for my who likes horror movies. This, again, is far better than the first Annabelle movie, uh, and it delivers uh, all around. And it gives you, it's not your typical horror movie. It wasn't even shot like your typical horror movie. It sort of kind of had European flair to it, and it let the story unfold. We had scares throughout. Of course, the last 20 minutes of this movie are pretty much like in your seat. What the hell is happening here? Um, but I don't know. I, I give it a higher grade than a B. Yeah, I, I do too. I mean, mm. if, if, if this is just the most random joke, but um, <laughs> the people I, I, I went to see it with a couple of people. One who was really looking forward to see it. One who had no idea what this was. Um, I just said, "Hey, want to see Annabelle?" And uh, luckily, I I got on the phone and someone asked me, "What am I doing?" I said, "Seeing a horror movie." And he was just shocked. He's like, "Wait, I thought it was a musical." <laughs> so thank God he learned that beforehand. Oh my God! True story. True story. <laughs> do I know this person? Yes, you do. Uh, anyway, you'll tell me off camera who this person yes. is, so I can. Oh, yes. musical. Oh, yeah, good God. I don't know. Well, I had a. Uh, Maybe he thought it was a sequel story. to like Annie or something. I'm just gonna put this plead out to people. For those of you who watch us and you have kids, um, if your kids don't like horror movies, don't take them. Uh, I was uh, I sat next to a woman who took two kids who were younger or about as young as the girls in this movie, uh, and and one of them just was not having it, and the woman just I kept see on yelling. Well, oh, oh, of course, and she, and and this is what I actually if if the movie itself wasn't horrific, these words will horrify you. Just close your eyes and go to sleep. <laughs> Those are the words that were echoed, and I was I'm like, are you? Are you effing kidding? Through this, she's already traumatized, and she's gonna go to sleep. That's your. She finally took her out of the theater, and and I was like, "You gotta, gotta be kidding me!" Look, I'm. I can't parent your kids. I don't know what they like. There are some eight year olds, who love like the horror. girl who love horror movies. I'll find that out at home. Maybe see a couple movies. Find at it home. out at home. Don't 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 do it in a in a movie theater. Which, by the way, is the theater I saw it in. Holy cow, the sound was awesome in this, too. 
Absolutely. You know, oh, it was uh, it was really really good stuff. Um, one of the interesting things before we start wrapping things up, yeah. um, I you know David, what he says, uh, I've been thinking about fun franchises. New Line has a Nightmare on Elm Street and Critters might be fun if you took something like that in a different direction with previous installment. Instead of remaking Nightmare, you do some continuation of it in the same kind of uh, world. So. Uh, you know, in terms of mindset, that's what he's kind of thinking about. So it'll be interesting to see what he does now. Yeah, it would be. Uh, you know, I think, and, and he likes the horror genre. He said he'd be more than happy to continue to work in the horror genre and at the same time maybe do something else. Um, you know, where you might not think of him because he's now plunked into horror, but I'm willing to bet that he could have a good sense of comedy timing. Right. You know, I mean, uh, take a chance. Um, you know, why not? So, uh, but it would be interesting. I mean, I know New Line already took a crack at rebooting Nightmare on Elm Street, and it really didn't work. It didn't deliver the scares. Look, I think that if you can deliver, if you want to do Nightmare on Elm Street, we'll talk about that. You want to do that, number one, you get a director like him who gets it, right? <clears throat> and you make the scares primal. That's what made the Wes Craven original scary you got to make it primal. But he's a guy that could, I think that he could pull I it think together. Could, for what it sounds like and from his current track record. Yeah, absolutely. And see Lights Out if you haven't seen it. I, I check us out. We, we did a great yeah. interview with, um, with um, well, I won't say, because check it out. Be surprised. <laughs> no, it was, uh, it was the male lead. The male lead. I, I wasn't, um, oh, yeah, yeah, I wasn't here. Oh, I missed out on that. Yeah. Well, I had other things going on. I believe on. Mercer got to sit next to him, which was a treat for her. <laughs> nice. Anyway. Um, He's a good guy. Look, it's a good movie. It's a good horror movie. Um, absolutely. So you could see how David S. Sandberg, and the gentleman too, check out Ouija 2 Origin of Evil. Not only do you get to see Lulu scare that crap out of you, but it's a very well-directed movie. Again, yeah. and so... So we've done a lot of, uh, we've covered a lot of horror here on Anatomy, so definitely check out some past episodes as well, especially as, uh, as Halloween is approaching. I know we're a little bit away, but it's approaching nonetheless. Hey, but it is That'll be th- fun. three weeks away, if that. I cannot wait. So we're going to certainly be talking about that. In the yeah. meantime, uh, support Dimitri at DMovies1701. Yep, please. Um, if I may, just make this as short as possible. Look, folks, uh, I, 98%, I, I love your support on Twitter. Uh, many of you write me back. And we've actually had discussion about movies, and I love that. I really do. 98% of my tweets are movie-related. I retweet a lot of movie stuff. Um, with what's going on in the world today, I think the other 1%, 2%, I've tweeted some other stuff out, just about social things, and I know I'm a movie guy. If anything that I've tweeted out there... Uh, has made you maybe not follow me anymore. Well, number one, I don't want to lose followers. I want supporters, and I do want to keep the discussion going on movies. But there's been lots going on that I just feel I just have to shoot off a tweet or two. Uh, I try to be humorous, but then I'll always bring it back to movies. So I don't mean to lose supporters. I don't mean to, uh, to, to, to take... I don't mean to be political, so to speak. Uh, if you can endure the 1%, of those tweets i'd appreciate it stay on board but if you so want to opt out i understand and i mean no offense so i just want to say that um and well hey 
as always, you have the comments to, to respond to here um, for the videos and so forth. So definitely let us know. Um, and if you're listening on iTunes or wherever, we appreciate you as well. So don't be afraid to, uh, to you know, comment yeah, tell as us. well. Oh, speaking of comments, I got something from, from Marissa. We got a comment earlier today from a Twitter follower who said, not a horror fan, but saw Annabelle three times. I dare you, Marissa, to see it once. <laughs> I didn't realize there was a third movie. Thank you. And on that joke, thank you guys for joining us. At Movie Anatomy is our uh, social media. Um, this is the network Popcorn Talk. Tons of tons of shows here. And of course, for Anatomy of Movie specifically, tons and tons of episodes, both horror, both non horror for you to dive through, um, and plenty more to come. So stay tuned. Thank you guys as always. Thanks Until so. next time. Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the rest of the Anatomy of a Movie staff. We would like to thank you for listening and subscribing to the show. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to email or tweet us. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been Anatomy of a Movie.